and that, that's another thing that fed me into doing documentary that I I got really I just got really suspicious of fiction and I still really am suspicious of fiction <laughs> you know, to me a lot of fiction just seems so it's crazy but it seems staged because it is staged and I just don't really I don't really believe in it I'd rather see the, the workings behind the scene hello I'm Dave I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together I need to get better Make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Charlie. Hello Charlie. Hello. <laughs> nice to be doing this. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So the first question that I ask everybody is how do you know me? So I know you through my girlfriend Sonia who has done lots of Spark events with you. I'm sure lots of your listeners will know Spark but it's brilliant storytelling now. So Sonia's been involved with Spark for ages. Yeah, like, a few so, years. So, so long that I can't remember a time when Sonia yeah, yeah. wasn't involved with Spark. Right. So we met at a Spark event through yeah, her. That's I guess. right. And Sonia's been on Getting Better Acquainted, yeah. so people can listen back to her episode if they want even more context. <laughs> uh, although, what context listening to her separate from you gives them, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't think she mentioned to me in that. No, I've no, listened no. to it. I'm not sure she's listened to it, but I've listened to it. Right, a lot, um, a lot of guests. I don't, and I don't remember. I think with her, it's maybe more that she has a big backlog of things to listen to in right, the world. And probably right. something that involves her is going to be bottom of the list. Right, well, I think it's hard to listen back to yourself. I understand, like, I wouldn't listen back to myself. If I didn't have to to edit the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll probably listen to this. Yeah. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. Depends if I want to return to the moment. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we better make it a good moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. what I return to. Let's, let's give that a go. Yeah. The second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? So I work for The Guardian. I'm the head of documentaries there, which means that I commission documentary films for The Guardian and organise documentary screenings and do documentary masterclasses and, and generally do documentary things right. for them. I've, I've always been someone whose work has maybe defined them. I guess there's other things that I do outside of my work, but I do always feel like that's the thing that defines me as a person. Right. It's an interesting time to become in charge of documentary at The Guardian, yeah. right? Because The Guardian's moving much more towards video, right, as far as I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So The Guardian has sort of had this revolutionary couple of years where... Okay. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's amazing. Yes, I should say, I'll use this opportunity to say we're in a cafe, we're in the Candid Cafe, uh, where I often do conversations when I'm going for a central London location, and uh, Charlie now has some cake. I just dropped some on the floor, but it's fine, I'm dealing with it. It's impressive cake, it's a, it's a yeah. vegan tart thing with a kind of biscuit base and some jelly and fruit on top. Yeah, it's good. It's quite incredible. The Guardian's kind of gone from a point of having no money, it being an open secret that the company was not not going to go bust in like a couple of years but was losing a lot of money and didn't have a long-term future unless something dramatic happens but due to various shrewd business decisions such as selling auto trader which weirdly the guardian owned there's a decent amount of money there for investment and this isn't a kind of secret thing I mean, yeah. this is kind of something that is kind of openly yeah. a thing the guardian is doing and so 
there's various angles that that investment fund and various other kind of editorial decisions are going to be focused on and one of those is video and that's basically because people like watching video on the internet like that's that's like a thing that you almost kind of take for granted like a lot of your time on the internet is spent watching a video (laughs) so there's lots of investment going into video in the guardian and one of those big focuses coming out of that is the documentaries and i i was brought on i mean i was kind of effectively headhunted to kind of do this and that was and that that was because um a few senior people at the guardian including alan rusbridger who's left now but was editor-in-chief at the time and is much missed him uh, my old boss meraby various other people got very excited about what documentary could do for journalism and for kind of information if information dissemination in the right. world and kind of they see it as a new way of telling stories a new way of doing journalism right because a lot um, of the columnists are becoming more like bloggers to a certain extent like yeah. some of them are doing regular videos I know Owen Jones is and yeah so Owen Jones has his own YouTube channel yeah. Polytorin V's regularly appearing right video Jonathan Friedland is a constant presence I mean that a lot of the kind of vlogging columnists on screen stuff isn't, isn't within my beat right but it's kind of reflective of like there always needed to be a video right as, as part of the stories that we do there and, and the documentaries are kind of seen as the the blue chip side of right our videos so it's the stuff that we're going to put more money into it's going to be the stuff that takes longer to make the stuff that's maybe followed over a, a long period and it's all, it's all a bit of an experiment really so they they brought me in and they were very excited about documentary but I'm not sure that they'd really thought a lot about what having any documentaries would necessarily entail but we've been figuring that out for the last nine months and I think we're in a pretty good place where even though the kind of leadership has changed and there's a new head of my department coming in, there's a real commitment there to just kind of trying to take that documentary space and just do something really interesting with it and experiment with it and see what it means to be an organisation like The Guardian commissioning documentaries. Right. And that's quite exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, and so you were sort of. The reason that you were headhunted, and the reason that I wasn't surprised that you were headhunted, mm. is because your previous job before The Guardian was a pretty cool one, and I guess another one that defined you, and also mm. documentary. So I was the deputy director at Sheffield Docfest, um, the UK's big documentary film festival, and I was at Docfest for seven years. Before I was the deputy director, I was the marketplace director, so I ran the kind of pitching forum there. And that was, it's kind of incredible it was seven years, because it just was... It just flew by, right? And it really—it it was an all-encompassing thing for me. I mean, that was my life for seven years. Right. I did a few things outside of that, but essentially, Dogfest was my—you know—it was my baby. It was my thing. We took it from being a tiny parochial UK-focused festival into being this kind of glorious international celebration of the art form. Right. And I mean, Sheffield Dogfest is massive. It is. It's gigantic, and there's a lot of people who don't know that it used to be a much smaller thing. I mean, it used to be a thing where only 500 people came and they'd all be kind of old men from the TV. And not there's anything wrong with old men, but old men from the TV industry. Yeah. And we managed to, I guess we managed to make it quite cool. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of always suspicious of calling things cool because I think it comes with a lot of kind of connotations that maybe I don't like. But we, we made it into a kind of an event that people wanted to go to that was kind of... Alive. It was vibrant. Yeah, it had, a, it had a life to it. It, it had lots of... It had a sense of fun. It had lots of new ideas flowing into it. It was very digital as well. So we sort of... 
all the time we'd be looking at new developments in, in, in culture generally, not just in documentary, and just seeing what we could do with it that would be kind of interesting. Right. Mm. And I mean, how did you end up? How did you end up being in charge of these documentary spaces? And, and, and I, I mean, I imagine that, that you began by making documentaries. But mm. I might be wrong. No, I didn't. Right. So um, <laughs> I'm glad I uh, put that clause in. No, 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 I didn't. I don't. I well, I mean, I, like so my life story is basically that I am um, a university. I I taught myself to make films. I was making lots of kind of probably terrible short experimental films, but I carried on doing that after university. But I'd also been doing screenings and little kind of film events at uni, and so I carried on doing that as well as the filmmaking. So I was kind of making films, organising screening events, doing a bit of kind of work experience on other people's films, but I kind of hated that, generally. So I just wanted to be doing my own thing. And then through doing... I used to do a weekly artist film event at the 291 Gallery in Hackney, which is an amazing old converted church, which is brilliant. And through that, I sort of built up this scene around the screenings and sort of realised that I was quite good at getting to know people and talking to filmmakers about their ideas and helping them out. And then I got a job at Channel 4, running 4Docs, which was their user-generated documentary channel. And I, I genuinely can't remember how that came about. I, th- I can't remember if I applied for it or if they came to me. <laughs> but anyway, I ended up working at Channel 4. And it was, it was only at that point that I started working in documentary as a dedicated thing. But I, the reason I really wanted to do it is because I'd sort of realised that a lot of the artist films that I was really enjoying were basically documentaries. So people like Patrick Keeler and Andrew Cotting and uh, John Smith and a lot of the kind of artist filmmakers who were making more accessible work that were sort of rooted in a political consciousness or rooted in a real sense of silliness. I realised that was the kind of stuff that I was really into. So that's, I guess I felt kind of pushed towards documentary that space and that's actually a trajectory that a lot of documentary people have taken that they've sort of been embedded in like artist film so the Channel 4 thing happened and then I moved to do the Docfest job because Channel 4 cut or they were about to cut four docs which was a terrible decision but anyway quite a few cuts at Channel 4 they were yeah I mean there were a few people who have been affected by them there there was a change there was a change in management and documentary people and they'd sort of they'd gone very they'd got very excited about the internet and then they sort of went straight sort of denying the existence of the internet which is a decision that I think they're still recovering from right yeah, yeah absolutely mm. so the films that you made when mm. you were making films yeah. were fiction or kind of experimental kind of yeah they were, they were experimental I did a few music videos for friends bands I was doing quite sort of scratchy super A like very kind of lo-fi things I was really at the time I was really fascinated by Angela Carter and other writers who would kind of be mixing, I guess, fantasy and kind of political and philosophical sensibility. And that's still a space that I really interested in, and I still love that. So I was very, I was influenced by, I guess that my biggest influences were, as well as Angela Carter, were people like Andrew Cotting and, oh God, who was the man who did... um, I can't remember the name of the film. You know the film with the kind of horrible creature who's got like hands with eyes on. Oh, you're thinking about Pan's Labyrinth, mm. and mm. the director is the, it's the same guy that did Hellboy and mm. all of those films. Mm. And typically, I can't remember. I can't remember. Anyway, anyway, him. 
that kind of fantasy horror philosophical conundrums kind of thing was I was really into that but I also really loved kind of badly made films right and that's kind of because I was self-taught so I wasn't technically a really good filmmaker right but I like I've always really loved Super 8 so I was really into anyone who was doing anything fun with Super 8 so there was also a kind of aspect of structuralist filmmakers in the 60s and 70s who were kind of scratching <laughs> straight onto film that I was really interested in as well right I mean the, the work I was making what like I haven't watched it back since I'm sure it's terrible but it was very heartfelt it was very kind of genuine and it was also sort of melted with this rediscovery of Jewish identity which wasn't a religious identity but it was a kind of cultural identity that I guess was stimulated by moving to Stoke Newington and I was sort of living near Stamford Hill when I first moved to London so I was really interested in really big Jewish populations in those areas if people yeah and they're sort of and they're like they're a Hasidic community who even though I grew up in the Jewish community in Leeds like there's a there's a really there's a tiny Hasidic community and the the Hasids that you do have there are nothing like the community that you have here and I was kind of fascinated by them because even though I'm I'm no real interest in their religious identity and they're quite a conservative community right I was sort of fascinated by these people who all dress the same and all look the same they're completely off limits even to other Jews like me so I was kind of interested in in them and also in the kind of radical Jewish identity of the late 19th and early 20th century as well and it all sort of melded together into the films I was making at the time yeah you, you were making them when you were studying right or was that after you finished it was um sorry. that was after like right. all the stuff I was kind of feeling after like the films I made during university were I mean they weren't totally unrelated they had a lot of nature in that was kind of the thing that connected a lot of my films was kind of always having elements of nature and open space into them. I kind of fancied myself as this kind of elfin sprite-like Well, you, you, you aren't unlike an elfin sprite. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I was definitely very much like that but, uh, at that age. I had kind of long, curly hair. Right, wow. For, you know, for the benefits of the tape. I'm quite kind of small and quite skinny. Um, and um, and I guess it was also... This is, this is really taking me up a lot of places, but I guess it was also that I was going out... When I first moved to London, I would go out a lot. I used to go to Trash, the nightclub, quite a lot. I sort of hung out with a lot of Stone Newton people who would go there. And so um, I was also quite influenced by kind of nightlife and kind of club kids. Right. So these all seem like really like non-complementary elements, but I'd sort of throw them all in and see I think those what elements sound like they would definitely be interesting to You can together. do something interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. with them together. Definitely. Mm. definitely. I haven't made a film for quite a long time I think the last thing I did was a music video that I did for my friend's band Betty and the Werewolves oh I know Betty um, the, which I, I, was I, know, I went to university with one of Betty and the oh, Werewolves oh cool yeah, okay yeah, yeah. I mean they're, so, they're not yeah. they're on a hiatus at the moment right exactly but, but I, I loved them I loved they, them I mean so everyone, everyone really everyone loved them and they and um, so good they, they, were, they, were, they were amazing it's like it's like female fronted in fact I think only the drummer was the, the drummer mm. was a man and everybody else was women mm. And uh, they're like pop punk, like mm. in a really excellent, brilliant way. Like I mm. still listen to their record. I mean, I love them. So <clears throat> my um, the singer Laura, I was at university with her, and then I got to know them all 
So I'd sort of, I mean, you tend to love your friends' bands anyway. Yeah, yeah, sure. But, like, they were massively influenced by C86 and kind of 80s indie pop. Right. Um, that was definitely in there. But they also brought this very modern, sort of quite filthy, yes. kind of female, like, confident... Sexualized, right. kind of sensibility, and they were really and I mean so like, and like Laura's, Laura's amazing, and Laura's an academic at Cambridge, so she's kind of and they were all very well read and they're yeah. all very intelligent. So there was you know there was a real kind of brilliant intellectual thing in there. But I did a music video for their single Paper Thin, which they released on Damaged Goods, which I am happy, which I am happy to share <laughs> with you. I'm very proud of that, and that was mostly shot on Super A, like in Avenue Park Cemetery and in Stoke Newton Library. I'm really pleased that I did that because I hadn't made anything for a few years before that and I did that with them and that was still I feel like that still represents the kind of sensibility that I'm interested in it's very far from the kind of documentary stuff yeah, yeah. That, that I do but I'm I'm very proud of that it's all it's kind of it's got lots of dress up in it's technically terrible but it it's it's got an authenticity to it and maybe that is the link with the documentary stuff because I really believe in authenticity I mean, and, and technically terrible is an interesting thing because mm-hmm. as well as it being something that people sneer at it's also an aesthetic mm. uh, and it's an aesthetic that many of us sort of go for like mm. people who are listening to this might be like that's terrible sound and I'm like sure that's fine with me mm. and, and actually that some of that stuff gives stuff character I don't think people care right. I really don't think people care and, and in the documentary commissioning I do when I talk to other people in the team about ideas they're usually way more interested in the technical quality of the films and in the filmmaking which I, I am in interested in and I would rather that it, it was really good filmmaking but I'm way more interested in it being a great story and it having great access and it being authentic right. as well right. that really that really that really matters to me and that's right. what I look for first yeah exactly there's authenticity in that sort of stuff but I, I think there's also like this my, my big thing at the moment is I just think like in terms of sound <laughs> and I think probably in terms of vision as well mm. as we get more and more slick and I love slick I love yeah. it like I love like you know give me a modern TV series and it's the it's the best of of, of, of slickness it's the mm. best of like all of those years and years and years of people perfecting these amazing mm. abilities to shoot and to edit and mm. to record and all of those things and they're amazing but they're so clean yeah. they're so they're so perfect mm. and it's like a perfection and it, and it goes all the way through them to the to the act you know the cast are all perfect looking yeah. the sound is all perfect looking and I sort of feel like where's Messi I want Messi again yeah. so I, I, I kind of like the podcast space if you like because mm. I can do what the fuck I like so I can make it messy I think there's going to be a bit more of that going forwards I think you know you go one one side of the pendulum and you end up swinging back the other way yeah yeah we, like we, we had, I don't know if you've heard of Mumblecore the kind of film movement of right. a few years ago now but that yeah. that to me is like the most significant film movement <laughs> Like probably over the last twenty years, and I and I love that precisely because of what you're saying. I like it because it was it was messy. It was all shot handheld. Most of the dialogue was improvised. All they were really low grade cameras. The cast, some of the cast were really beautiful. Like Greta Gerwig is kind of amazing looking, although she doesn't look as kind of pristine in those films as she did now. But a lot of the other people in it would be just a bit kind of messed up and like they'd always feature very real sex you know not really beautiful people and not really having like amazingly perfect sex Um, and they'd kind of go on road trips and it would be a real road trip so it'd all be a bit bumpy and a bit kind of messy and 
I love the sensibility of those films and it's 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 kind of fed into things like well like Lena Dunham is like the biggest exponent of it and then Inappropriate Behaviour and all those kind of films that are around now that are slick and have kind of fed off that but I really I really crave a return to that sort of down and dirty movement where no one really cared whether everything was in focus right. or what was going on or whether the sound was brilliant and there were small teams who were who were improvising a lot of it and I've always really loved improvisation yeah. and that, that's another thing that fed me into doing documentary that I I got really I just got really suspicious of fiction and I still really am suspicious of fiction <laughs> you know to me a lot of fiction just seems so it's crazy but it seems staged because it is staged and I just don't really I don't really believe in it I'd rather see the the workings behind the scene right Right, and I mean, are you are you intending to go back to making film at some point, or are you? Are you, are you well, I always I always say that I'm going to do it, and with with doing the Docfest job, there was no time. I had so little free time, and the free time I did have, you know, I wanted to hang out with Sonia, or um, I wanted to, I just wanted to do something you else, some life. or like go for yeah. a walk. I mean, like, like I wasn't. This is it, quite it was, a reasonable thing. <laughs> and all my creative energies were going into that. Yeah. And now with the Guardian job, I, I do have more free time. I'm still putting a lot of time into it but I do have more free time and it's sort of even this last weekend it, it felt like the first time when I sort of sat down and I you know decided I was going to write and to see what happened and it was kind of difficult I mean it's, it's difficult when you've not really had a major creative output for a while right. <laughs> to sort of force yourself to do it but, right but that was really nice doing that because that did make me think oh yeah I could just pick up a camera and do some stuff again and kind of mess around and just see what comes of it and that's really nice so I have no immediate intentional plans to make a film but I feel like I'm on the road now to trying stuff that will probably mean that I do make something but I don't want to declare yeah, I'm yeah, going yeah. to make a film because sure. as soon as I do that I know it'll feel like it's become a job to me <laughs> absolutely no fair enough yeah. seven years at Dotfest mm. and then what it's like been a year at the Guardian mm. a bit under like nine, yeah. nine years right I mean, so that's kind of like pretty much the best part of 10 years. Yeah. Looking at other people's submissions mm. and lots of different documentaries and deciding which ones to show people mm. and which ones not to show people. Yeah. I mean, what makes a good documentary in your view as someone who's had lots of years, I guess, to work it out? Yeah, so I'm, I'm quite kind of strident. <laughs> so I really believe in story. So I always want a really great story at the heart of all of the films and there's a you know there's a million ways to tell the story I'm not prescriptive in what that story is but I really want Doc to take me somewhere so I'm less keen on a purely observational moment in time kind of Thing. Like, I really want to feel like I'm in a different place at the end of that film, so I want it to tell me some kind of story. I want it to be purely authentic, so I kind of want unfiltered reality, so I'm quite suspicious of the filmmaker being too present in the film. Like, I'd much rather have the story unfolding in front of me than have a very kind of interventionist filmmaker who's trying to direct me in a particular direction. I... I really like something that feels utterly up-to-date and really contemporary and not kind of repeating 
stories and subjects of the past. So I'm really not that into historical doc. I want it to tell me something really, really new that I haven't heard about before that's really breaking new ground. And I'm always kind of looking for something that's going to, I guess, make a difference to people. And that can be the most obvious way, which is a kind of, you know, political doc that's, like, intentionally making a point. But I also like things that make the world feel really changed around you. So a couple of years ago, I, I did this speech at South by Southwest that was sort of reacting to this wave of people talking about films that change the world. And I'd sort of decided that what I wanted instead was films that make the world feel changed. So I wanted things that made um, make it feel like you'd had a really dramatic change to the, to the universe around you and that you'd kind of come out of the cinema or you'd, sw- you know, you'd press stop on Vimeo or whatever and that everything had been utterly affected around you. And I, like, I have countless examples of this, but I mean, like a really recent one is 20,000 Days on Earth, the Nick Cave film, um, which I just I feel like is an utterly revolutionary film. And it's a totally different way of telling a story. It's a different way of doing a autobiography. And like, I mean, calling it autobiography does it such a kind of disservice. But it really, like, it's, it's an amazing way of making you get in the head of an artist but also just the head of like a man who's getting older so you feel like everything has changed around you and I also really love that about everything that Jeremy Deller does as well I mean he's like he's my kind of top artist in the world and I like it that you feel like something switched around you like nothing's the same afterwards so I really kind of look for that like I have quite high aims for what what a dog should be but it's kind of I mean there's and there's loads of other things I look for but I think it's kind of all summed up in like story authenticity and like total originality part of what Sheffield Docs does is it supports documentary make, makers as well it mm. kind of nurtures and uh, helps people to make better documentaries and we, we you were a big part of that so, I mean I know to a certain extent you were because I've I, I ran a workshop once that you sort of commissioned to yeah. for documentary makers. Yeah, so like I spent a lot of time there trying to do new things, basically. So that was like, I got, I was so sick of going to festivals around the world that all did the same thing. And so me and Heather, who was the festival director there, um, we sort of collectively had this real bullshit detector, or kind of bullshit filter when people would send us stuff. So we'd kind of look at stuff and go like, that feels so predictable like people might actually like going to it but it just feels like it's been done loads and we don't want to be doing stuff that just feels like you've seen it a thousand times before so we'd always try and find new voices who were doing docs in new ways but also also I guess expand what documentary would be understood as so when when, when we both started I mean Heather started about a year before me but when, when the kind of the new team came on board everything that happened at Sheffield was about TV and we decided that we you know I mean really basically we wanted to do more theatrical docs but we also wanted to look at stuff that was happening online we wanted to look at radio documentary we wanted to look at graphic novels as a format for documentary right, right. they're a really excellent medium for documentary some of my favourite comics for, for sure uh, documentary comics yeah and, the, and this was sort of people sort of thought this was quite revolutionary when we and I think that was my first year actually 2008 when we when we did the graphic novel panel and I think people were quite shocked by it and since then I mean that there's been even more of, of that kind of of that coming out and it's really kind of accepted yeah. that it is a form for, for right. documentary there definitely is more and more of it I mean I remember like 
you know, yeah, Joe Sacco is my is yeah. my guy in terms yeah. of documentary comics. But I mean, also Mouse is a bit is mm. a bit of a documentary in a way. I mean, mm. that's the thing with comics; it, it blurs the line between fiction and fact. Mm. Like, and I guess that's a questionable thing to do in some mm. ways. But I love it mm. um, in comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, totally. That. And the, the best, the best examples that have blurred reality and fiction, right. generally in all documentary forms, I think have been in graphic novels. Because you just can play with the form. I mean, you can play with the form in in normal filmmaking. I've sort of gone off a lot of filmmakers who are doing hybrids and doing kind of docu fiction, just because I think it's kind of. I think they're sort of wannabe fiction filmmakers who don't really want to do docs, but I think it really works in graphic novels. I'm a massive fan of Ariel Schrag, who I think has just totally stopped doing graphic novels. <laughs> and is doing other things but I love what she did and that I mean that's more pure documentary than something like Mouse but she has kind of moments of fantasy right. in there that are really kind of you know really lovely right I mean and well Persepolis is, is, another, mm. is another one like that as well like those it's, 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 it's those moments yeah those mm. moments where where something true is told through like like you say through a fictional or imaginary mm. moment which you know is still documentary because it's documenting the imagination that someone yeah. had at that moment in time so it's still documentary yeah like, yeah I guess that's sort of like sounds like the sort of things we were talking about earlier on when we were talking about when you were talking about what you liked in, in terms of your filmmaking mm. was sort of like fantasy mixed with with real you know like, yeah yeah and I still really like that in the fiction films that right. I enjoy because right. I go to outside of my job I go and see films all the time yeah and I can kind of suspend my disbelief and I can just enjoy like a fantasy film more kind of horror and in a way I almost kind of prefer genre films to just kind of dramas but the things that I really really like are the things that are semi-improvised and have an element of of documentary to them and that's what I really love about someone like Lena Dunham and I really think that Tiny Furniture is like the most amazing example of a fiction film that is is almost a doc I mean there was so like so much of that is taken from her life it's got her family and friends in I mean so much of that is a kind of document of her life but kind of slightly fictionalised that's that's what I enjoy most when I do go and see fiction that or kind of something that's so kind of labelled as fiction that you could just totally give yourself to it like like horror for example So you brought in the idea of having like graphic novels or mm. comics as yeah. documentaries as part of Sheffield Docs. What other th- ways were you trying to expand what documentaries were considered to be? We really grew the radio doc and the podcasting side of things in the last couple of years that right. I was there, which was like we, it was relatively hard for because I not because no one was interested, but everyone thought it was really small. And I remember in the first year there saying that we should invite Ira Glass, and everyone just thinking I was insane because they had no idea who he was and then it was every year I would invite Ira and then he finally came in maybe it was 2011 I can't even remember yeah, now. 20... I remember, I remember yeah. it happening because I remember being like oh why can't I go this year like, yeah 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 so, so I would find it and by that point it was just that it was sort of in the six months leading up to that that it kind of clicked with everyone in the staff and also with the festival audience it was only then that they were like oh yeah the smoking life I've heard of that by which point I was sort of almost at a point where I was like yeah, I'm not so, I'm not so right, right, into right. the smoking life I'm more interested in radio lab and those other kind of things right. so, so I'm pleased that I sort of left a legacy of there being audio documentary award and that space that space is really exciting and expanding all the time we brought in a big 
interactive documentary element to it. So we we bring in virtual reality and web-based interactive projects and kind of immersive things. So like kind of not computer games, but computer documentary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so things that are non-linear, immersive, very experimental. I mean, it was kind of taking me back to where I came from and kind of doing artist film because they 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 tend to be non-linear. They tend to be emotion-heavy and experiential rather than narrative-led. So they're quite challenging things. I mean, it's an interesting space. And in 2014, losing my track of time, but in 2014, 2014, we brought this thing called Door into the Dark to Sheffield, which was a uh, participatory experience where you have this kind of big welding mass with kind of dark glasses um, and you follow a rope around a pitch black space whilst you hear someone narrating stories of blindness and kind of loss of sight. I mean, it's so amazing. And the team who make it who are it's a company called Anagram it's basically two like young women who are incredible people um, one of whom I was at university with but like they weirdly just reappeared in my life so we brought that and that is is that documentary I mean god knows but it's a really cool thing <laughs> to have and it has elements of fact at the heart of it and I love it that we brought that and that I'm so I was so excited to bring something like that and it's a great experience it's like a half an hour experience that's utterly transcendent and I, I did it in Sheffield and I did it again in New York in April at the, another festival that it was part of and you just give yourself to this utter darkness you sort of start out on this road and I mean this is a slight spoiler but then the road runs out and then you're just totally kind of you know you're just abandoned that sounds amazing in this space and you, like part of you knows that there are people who are going to help like if you freak out there are people to help you but you just you just give yourself to it and it's like utterly you're just in the void and that's and you're hearing these kind of beautiful things but you tune in and out of them and you just want to stay in the darkness <laughs> forever so, anyway, so this is re- this is a really different experience to sit and watching a 90 minute documentary <laughs> in the cinema so um, so we brought that in and we had I think we had some elements of documentary photography with audio over the top of them you said you grew up in Leeds yeah what kind of a family background do you have <laughs> Say. I mean, it's, obviously it's Jewish, we've yeah. got that, and we've got the Leeds, but what else would you say about Yeah, yeah, so I'm from a um, middle class, probably left of centre, right. which is quite rare in the Leeds Jewish community. I've got one older brother who works for the police, which is funny because I've done quite a lot of activism. My dad's a solicitor, my mum works for a benefits service, like she gives people national insurance numbers. Right. So yeah, so I had, I guess I had quite a kind of conventional upbringing right I mean growing up in Leeds was I sort of really appreciated it I sort of did appreciate it at the time to some extent I mean I think unless you unless you grow up in London I think you always feel like the action is happening somewhere else so I felt like all the cool stuff was happening in London but equally like I used to go and see bands you know I had like a big town centre that was loads to do I lived in the suburbs but it was only like a 20 minute bus ride into town I have much fonder feelings towards Leeds now than I've left right than I probably did at the time. Yeah, that's often the case. But I think, but yeah, I think it's really typical of it. And I'm not someone who kind of hated growing up there, really. I mean, I sort of did appreciate what I had, but I was also really desperate to get away. Right. And I, I always wanted to move to London. From, right from being a teenager, I always wanted to move to London. And when you got away, I guess you, you went to study. So I went to Cambridge, right. which I have very mixed feelings about now. I don't ever remember like wanting to go there, but it sort of seemed like 
it would be a good idea to go there. I think I was quite passive about it. I sort of knew that I would probably be able to get in. It sounds awful saying it like that. It necessarily it's, sounds but, awful. But, but I mean, it was like, it, it was, you know, I, w- I worked really hard at school. It's, it's not like I was lazy and I just sort of drifted into it. Like, I did work quite hard. I was really interested in acquiring knowledge. I was very political and I did social and political sciences there. So I sort of knew that I'd be able to do it. So I went there and it was really great being away from home. I do, I do have really mixed feelings about it because it is, it is a weird bubble. I wasn't really comfortable with how exclusive everything is there. And you sort of live in this fantasy world and even though I'd grown up in like comfortable middle class environment, I hadn't met southern middle class right so you went to a comprehensive um, school well no I went to I oh, went to right, a private okay. school okay well, <laughs> I went to, well no wonder no wonder you sort of could see a career, the career path going to Cambridge though. yeah yeah that exactly. makes sense. so I mean it's kind of you know it's like a private school in Leeds but it's still like it's still it's still in the north it's right. still like it, it's there is there's a massive difference between a school like the one I went to in Leeds and the kind of schools that the people I met at Cambridge went to right okay. like people who'd been to like St Paul's in London Winchester or like I don't know like 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 Eton and Harrow I mean they're like another level obviously but I just I hadn't really met people like that I hadn't met upper middle class people before I went right. there and that that's what that's the dominant set of people that you get at Cambridge like the stereotype is that everyone's from Eton and Harrow and they're all kind of lords and aristocrats and actually those people are okay like they kind of keep themselves themselves and the kind of nature of a lot of people like that now is that they're more likely to be like trustafarians than like conservative ministers for the people that I and not that I was really good friends with them but I sort of in a weird way I got on with them better than the people who'd been to like a top kind of you know London based or just outside of London private school who were from like an upper middle class background who had who, who, were, who were kind of new money like in the last couple of generations those are the people that I felt kind of really uncomfortable around and they really and they really dominate a lot of what Cambridge is and at the time I don't think I really acknowledged that and there was a lot of other stuff going on as well like I made lots of good friends there but I also did a million different things there so like I ran the film society and I was in loads of plays and I edited the arts pages of the newspaper and did a show on the radio station did a TV show on the TV channel I did a lot of stuff there as well as like studying obsessively so there was sort of it was a very intense time there and I think I was sort of trying to make up for the fact that I wasn't really sure where I sat socially there so if you just keep busy you don't have to think about yeah but I did yeah but but I don't really regret that no because I didn't want to be just waiting around I did make lots of friends and had a kind of nice social time especially in my first year there it was much more important to me to kind of make stuff and do stuff yeah, and kind yeah, of set yeah. myself up for doing things after well I mean I didn't, I didn't go to Cambridge I went to Lancaster which is quite a well yeah. upon university actually so it's, 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 it's not to say that just because I went to Lancaster doesn't mean I'm not privileged in lots of ways yeah but, yeah but I spent my time there 
just making stuff all the time as yeah. well. And I think partly it's because this, you kind of know that that's the last time you're going to be able to do that stuff without the requirements of life around you. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, with, no, with no kind of commercial pressure. Right, right, right. I mean, like, especially at Cambridge, where there's just loads of money swilling around for all of these societies. Right, so you can, right. like put on a massive dramatic spectacle right. and you can kind of get all this like filmmaking equipment that just like lived in my bedroom <laughs> literally just lived in my room you can just do all this stuff and it's like it's an amazing opportunity to not even to like add to your CV but just to kind of like make work and experiment and see what happens time. And, you know and like yeah and you have yeah and you have infinite amounts of time I mean just like endless endless amounts of time and I usually stayed on in the holidays as well right. and that was particularly amazing for doing stuff because I'd be doing a bit of academic work in the holidays but mostly I'd just be kind of bumming around and like writing and making films and you know it really I think that's what you should do when you go to places like that I'm pleased with what I did there but also I really like the course as well and like and I, I was really devoted to, to studying that as well and I didn't really understand why people didn't throw themselves into all this amazing critical theory and I was probably a really I think you know, I was a kind of like pretentious <laughs> political person at the time and I'd devise all my own kind of theories and ideas that probably people had said before but I sort of knew that that didn't really matter it was more about like exercising <laughs> my intellectual capacities <laughs> I, I mean I want to talk to you about the politics and the, the activism side because that's interesting but before I kind of go yeah. on to that this is, I mean this is a segue this is kind of both yeah. but how do you feel about Cambridge as an institution as, yeah as an institution as a cultural force practice whatever whatever yeah. you might describe it as I mean obviously you benefited from it you're yeah. working for the Guardian a lot of people in the media have been to Oxford and Cambridge and hey loads of them are my friends now. <laughs> I definitely don't write off people because they went to Oxford and Cambridge but I am aware that they have uh, tremendous privileges because of it but then as soon as they're my friends I get a bit of that privilege too you yeah know, it's, yeah it's complicated yeah yeah it's, it is really complicated it's a, it's a really hard thing because I was even at the time that I went to Cambridge I was really kind of politically opposed to it right like I really was right. like so even at the time I went there I was kind of didn't I didn't really like what Cambridge stood for but I also sort of knew that it would benefit me and also I was quite naive as well so I kind of thought I was different to the normal people that went there I didn't right. feel like I was coming from the usual background because I was from Leeds which isn't which isn't accurate right and though it did going there like it did feel like it did feel like there weren't many northerners there right, I don't well, know what the statistics are there aren't very but many I really didn't need that many northerners there so I felt like I was a kind of curio <laughs> there but during the time that you're there it's very hard not to just be seduced by the privilege because you don't have many other reference points outside of that. And even if you're getting involved in activism, you know, even if you're involved with the socialist worker there, which I was, and you're doing all this kind of political activity, you don't realise that you're doing it in a very Cambridge kind of way. Right. But then I also do think, looking back, that it is better to be there 
and being aware of your privilege and trying to work against it and try and reform the world than just to be there and not do that? Yeah, I mean, a number of important political activists and thinkers mm. have gone through Oxford and Cambridge. You know, that can't, that yeah. also can't be denied. Like Tony Benn, like loads of people of yeah, it does breed, go through those. It does breed, and lots of brilliant activists that have come across went to Oxford or Cambridge. There is, there is an aspect that coming from that background allows you to be quite radical because you've got the luxury of time and money that means you can you can be radical right yeah and you are and you are treated differently by the police and other authorities if you're a kind of polite educated middle class person that isn't good but I do think there's an argument for saying that you can kind of push the doors open that hopefully other people are going to follow you through yeah but it, it is complicated the sociology and politics departments at Cambridge were, when I was there, incredibly left-wing. I mean, you have a very Marxist education there. All the, almost all the theory you get taught, especially in sociology, is Marxist or, at its weakest, socialist. Right. So, um, it really informed my political views like, yeah, like I do feel like I was radicalised yeah. I was no, reasonably radical already but it definitely pushed me further left yeah. and that's not a bad thing yeah. <laughs> but now I am I'm not sure what I feel about it now and I actually did a, I went to, back to Cambridge for the first time in years last week to do a screening with The Guardian and a, a film festival and I met some brilliant brilliant people there it was out of term so it wasn't you know like there weren't loads of students there but the people I did meet there they were lovely but I did feel like you know this is a very kind of protected bohemian middle class environment <laughs> and this is kind of what I remember from being there at the time I don't know if these are the right people to be trying to kind of encourage to make documentaries right it, it's yeah it's confusing yeah <laughs> what things do you, are you active about like I'm a very inactive activist I occasionally am active but very yeah. much most of the activism I do is through art yeah um, which is the, the easy cop out activism where you don't have to put your, your neck on the line yeah. What is your activism around? I'm, I mean, I, like, currently I'm actually quite an inactive activist, right. which I feel quite guilty about. But I did go through quite an extended period of, first of all, being involved with the climate movement and groups like Climate Rush and Climate Camp and the anti-war movement as well. And that, that was, I guess, quite informed by the Iraq war protest. Right. And I really clearly remember the war happening and that being in a moment when I kind of felt like, you know, you can't trust the government to represent you anymore. You can't trust them to listen to you. You need to take matters into your own hands. And I was really, I was really inspired by the climate movement in particular. And that was, I suppose, the biggest push I had into direct action. And that was really exciting. Like that kind of rush of occupying a space and just being with kind of really enthused, like-minded people. And it was always really fun. I was never the most kind of dangerous activist. But I, did, I think it was a really great space. And then through that, I got increasingly involved with UK Uncut, the anti-tax avoidance organisation. And that, I mean, that, that was a really, that was, that's been a really big thing in my life. And I still think that what UK and Gert achieved 
as a collection of people was kind of amazing. I mean, Tax Avoidance just wasn't on the agenda at all. No, that's true. I mean, I, I actually went on a couple of actions mm. in the UK and Cut as well, but I never got properly involved. I never, I never get involved in activism. I always turn up, like, like, like when you turn up to a party that you haven't quite been invited to, and you yeah. sort of stand at the side trying to work out how to yeah, and that is, I mean, that is kind of typical, and I've had that experience. And that is quite a typical to have a experience. But UK and Cut was so welcoming, and it felt so kind of natural that you would go and do this fun action in a space, and no one would be aggressive or violent not that there's actually not that I actually think there is anything wrong necessarily with being with with a kind of constructive aggression but anyway right. uh, not that I would do that I mean I think the point with that sort of stuff is that you have to have like it's justified violence or yeah yeah there's a difference between so, damage to property and damage to people right exactly basically. and then there's and different people in different groups who have more reason to be frustrated as well I think yeah, that's yeah, exactly. the other thing like, exactly and it has to be in the context of the way that you are treated right. when you are enacting your democratic right to protest absolutely but anyway you, you know you can go it's a non-violent direct action movement so I got really involved with that and ultimately it led to an arrest and two court cases which ultimately I won I had a conviction well a guilty verdict it's not technically a conviction I had a guilty verdict overturned but yeah that that took up about 18 months to two years of my life and so ultimately so that kind of coming out of that point which was which I actually now think of as a really kind of constructive part of my life I mean, it was fascinating seeing how the court system works and how you're kind of treated as an activist who's kind of made an example of. But definitely coming out of that, that all was kind of over, I think, towards the end of 2012 or, like, early 2013, maybe. And since then, I've sort of done bits and pieces, but it was... It was kind of exhausting. It does sap your, it does kind of sap your strength, and it also does. It's, it's intended to being being prosecuted for taking part in a protest is, I think, specifically designed to sap your energy and make you really cautious at protests. Right, and well, it's you, definitely done that. <laughs> well, you've got a, like you've, you're on the system as well. So yeah. when, you, when you get processed, they they go oh. We've got more, more. We we've got more on him. Yeah, yeah. So that's a yeah. I can exactly. Understand. Yeah. So it does. So so I have a lot of respect for people who just keep on doing it. And I guess also, I mean, UK and Cut's less active at the moment. I'm sort of looking for my movement to be deeply involved in. But then alongside that, there's still lots of causes that I really believe in that I still try and get really deeply involved with kind of you know and, and I, I'm actually like looking to the future I really want to get involved with supporting migrants a lot more and I just think we're going to see an increasing need to kind of show solidarity Absolutely. with migrants trying to get into the country and also being thrown out of the country so that's the kind of thing I've got my eye on getting involved with but I guess I've been kind of slightly um, unsure about where my energies should lie I mean, saying that, actually, like, I've kind of, for the last probably almost ten years, I've been sort of loosely part of this Jewish culture and activism organisation called Judas. And we, it's always been more about kind of having fun, but that, due to kind of influx of new people, um, that's become more political. And there is, there's an argument (laughs) over whether there has been a rising tide of anti-Semitism. I'm a bit sceptical about all of that. There's definitely been... 
a rise of there's definitely more people willing to say far right things and to openly be racist and that has kind of slid into anti-semitism at times and so that is definitely an area that I am starting to get more and more involved in even though I think a lot of the claims of anti-semitism are overblown I think that once you give an inch to it and also it's not just about anti-semitism as well it's that wider cause about opposing any form of racism right Jewish people have a lot of reason to be in solidarity with migrants yeah with, I mean because you know Jewish people have historically been migrants and, yeah yeah and, and race, again racism is something which hope, you would hope that all of the groups who get brief will unite together against but that but this is, it doesn't exactly work it doesn't like really work time. like that because people really do just kind of cut the ladder beneath them and I've, I feel like the Jewish community has, has become very complacent about their place in British society right. so even when there are kind of horrific anti-Semitic demonstrations planned which is kind of happening at the moment there are like terrible divisions that are kind of caused within the Jewish community by the kind of right of the community he will automatically kind of slide it in with Zionism and will kind of say like this is sort of about anti-Semitism but it's more about anti-Zionism and so what we need to do is at this demo we need to show solidarity with Israel whereas actually like it's not it's not about that in fact regardless of people's views on Israel and Palestine I actually think like it is more important that we as a kind of diverse Jewish set of people bind together to fight racism in all its forms and not try and turn it into something that is Jewish exclusive whether right. it's about Israel or, or otherwise I mean that element of it is probably is what makes it a complicated area though, yeah, isn't yeah. It? because it's like a lot of the time anti-Semitism gets added to legitimate criticism yeah. I think and that's a problem that's a problem like if you're saying someone's being anti-Semitic when they're challenging you politically whether you don't have to agree with them or not but if you see anti-Semitism there it just makes it murkier and it means yeah. you can't really tackle actual anti-Semitism and it's yeah and it's really respect and it's and it's really complex because there are elements within the within a lot of kind of pro-migrant movements and pro-Palestine movements who I have like complete solidarity with where there are genuine anti-Semites in there Um, and I am wary of making too much of that you sort of have to you can end up getting into endless arguments about that and and there was a big kind of counter-protest of what was actually like a tiny far-right protest outside Downing Street which was a few weeks ago and I couldn't actually make it and there were literally about like 20 far-right people there but one of them had a Palestinian flag and that's such a disastrous thing I mean it's so politically muddled like I don't understand what that really person was trying to say far right groups are massively Islamophobic as well as massively yeah I mean it, it makes it makes no sense yeah. To do, like, I, like I'm fascinated by what that person thought they were doing right. but that you only need one person to do that for it to kind of deepen those divisions in, in, in any kind of attempt to have a kind of solidarity between different people on the spectrum of the, of the various different Jewish communities and I'm way more interested in just trying to band together to generally support all migrants and all discrimination and not just try and kind of make it about these small numbers of people with anti-Semitic views who are the same people who will go in much bigger numbers on 
on EDL marches, right. like Britain First marches, or whatever they're called. I mean, there is no doubt that at this moment in time, the right is growing in, yeah. in every sense, both yeah. politically, like both in mainstream politics and in the fringes, which yeah. are becoming a little bit less fringy, which is always more and more nerve-wracking. You know? Yeah, yeah. 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 So, and, and I guess uh, the and an, another thing I know about you in terms of kind of activism slash politics or whatever is, I guess, well, I know that Sonia is a vegan, so yeah. are you also a vegan, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm a vegan. Yeah, yeah. So me and Sonia both became vegan at the same time in, I think, in 2007. It's a strange thing, like to be, to be I, I feel like, because there's so many people have got baggage with that. Like, I don't care if someone's a vegan or not. Yeah. Like, doesn't, like, that's, that seems to be a personal choice about what you do and there's yeah. a lot of good reasons for it there's a lot of political reasons and environmental reasons yeah. that I can totally support I just like meat and eggs and milk and stuff too much but, <laughs> but I mean you know which makes me a hypocrite which makes, you know, but, but, but then there's a lot of baggage I think people have around you know veganism it's one of the many things that people use to like mock the middle classes if you like yeah. liberals whatever you yeah, want to say yeah. right? I mean just kind of thinking back to what I was just saying about you know, all my interest in kind of supporting migrants and tax avoidance and everything else. The only thing people that ever really want to talk to me about is the vegan thing. <laughs> like, no one ever really wants to have a long conversation about, like, tax well, policy. I've left it till very late. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no it's good. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> I go to lots of film festivals around the world and I spend so many meals with people just 100% talking about being vegan. <laughs> people won't let it go. Sometimes they're trying to catch you out. Sometimes... They're just fascinated with you. They're fascinated by what you eat and, and they want to talk about how difficult it is. Most of the time they want to talk about why they're not vegan right. and kind of justify it right, to you. Right, and sort right. of to do exactly what you did yeah, and go yeah. like, you know, I like being... It, it's really central to my identity being vegan. It's a really important thing to me. It's not something that I will ever stop being. For me, it is utterly about a principle stance that I believe that animals are sentient beings, that I believe that animals have as much of a right to live as human beings. I'm not saying that I think that animals and humans have exactly the same rights, but I definitely think that, because I actually think animals have a different set of rights, but I think that they are on the same level of importance, because it's about respecting a sentient creature's right to live. So I really fundamentally, ethically believe in the wrongness of exploiting an animal in any way. And that's that's kind of, like, that's really different to vegans who do it for environmental reasons or do it for health reasons. Or what I suppose aren't as kind of principled on it as possible. And people find it quite, I think people find it quite difficult to take that. And you always get into this kind of reductive conversation about where you draw the line, about recognising sentience yeah. in a living being. Because it is, and I'm not going to kind of replay all those conversations now, but I do fundamentally believe that a living sentient creature should not only not be eaten, but shouldn't have its body exploited, and it shouldn't give you something that it is not willingly chosen to give you. Right. The thing of it being about, you know, a middle-class privilege or anything, yeah. it's... 
I I can do this because I live in a like big city that has you know, many many options for me to be able to kind of find vegan food. So of course it's much easier for me to do it here. But really, all you need to do is live somewhere where you have access to vegetables, beans, and pulses. Yeah, it's like you can do it in most places. Oh, well, I mean, I don't think that you have to be middle class to be a vegan. No, 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 I don't, no, 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 you don't. I know you don't think that, but it's a kind of, it's, it's, it's a ridiculous thing to say because it's actually quite cheap. Yeah. to live off vegetables no, sure. and beans like a large proportion of people in the world live off and not, not just the classic example is always India where you know there's more vegetarians than anywhere else in the world but actually like look at loads of cultures around the world it's like yeah, I mean they might sometimes have meat but mainly they live on the kind of natural things that are around them so it's yeah. not it's not that hard it is prevalent in lots of different places around the world and of course like it really helps to be able to just pop down to the shop and get something vegan but like you know I would do it if I I've been to lo- I travel all the time and I can always find a way to eat something so, vegan so I mean the question I got about that is so I guess it feels to me like it's a little bit like I used to have a, a really good friend who was an evangelical Christian yeah and, and based on his the way he thought about the world you know I was always aware that Ultimately, he thought everybody that you know was going to hell. Yeah, yeah. Unless they accepted Jesus into their heart, and I always thought that must be a really kind of complicated emotional position for him to be in when he's looking at his friends, going, "That person's going to hell." Yeah. And so, what? Why? Why I'm equating this with yeah. uh, with veganism is like, if that's your reason for being a vegan, which I I can understand, I understand the logic of it. Yeah. Does that mean that when you're watching your friends eating hot dogs or whatever, you're like, you know, just thinking, my God, my friends are the worst people? No, 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 not. I mean, and I'm not saying you do think that, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, not not at all. I mean, strategically, (laughs) I think that you're never going to persuade anyone to become a vegan by being critical of their food habits. I think it's more important to set an example of being vegan, being relatively normal, and eating a balanced diet and being healthy and to kind of talk to them about your reasons for being vegan so that's kind of my strategy at festivals is like I will if they genuinely want to know the ethical reasons behind it I'll explain it I always sort of test them and say like do you actually want to know or do you just kind of do you just find it a bit kind of curious and just want to kind of like I don't know cope with your your guilt for not being vegan which I don't I don't think they should be guilty I think people can do what they want but anyway but if they do want to talk about it I'll always kind of explain it in ethical terms and try and I'm never trying to persuade them but I'll just kind of lay lay the case out and say like if you if you if you believe in the sentience of a non-human animal then and it's kind of willingness to stay living and it's willingness to kind of hold on to its skin not to be milked to death then sorry to be emotive no, then but that's um, a fact I mean, yeah 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 exactly with these things, then, they are facts then it's I like, don't necessarily I don't necessarily have the same framework for mm. analysing those facts but neither of us can argue with that fact no I exactly mean, particularly in modern farming practices I mean I'm not as far as you in terms of seeing sentience in animals I don't necessarily go with you on that all the way although it's a complicated area I definitely yeah, agree yeah. there are definitely there are some animals I'm like that's more sentient than others yeah. but regardless of that I'm not pro like modern farming practice mm. I would like much prefer my animals to have nicer lives before I eat them which yeah. is kind of you know it, it, 
I don't know if that's hypocritical or not. I don't know. Well, it's, I don't. I mean, to go back to the question of kind of you know being evangelical, like yeah. I don't. I genuinely don't judge people in my life. I mean, I do on some levels, like right. if they're racist. You know, right, right, right. There are some things where. I would judge them, but I don't. But then, actually, I'm thinking about it. Like, even with someone who's racist, I don't think they are a bad person. I think that they are ill-informed and they've made bad choices and they've got bad opinions. But I don't think they're like a bad person. I don't really believe in the idea of a bad person. No, me So, like, I don't think it is a serious moral wrong for that person that I'm with who's eating a hot dog to be eating that hot dog. Like, I think there are far worse things that they could do, but I would, of course, prefer that they were vegan. I am quite disgusted by it. Like, you can't you can't help feeling a sense of disgust towards it. Right, that's... I mean, like, um, I'm, I'm sort of empathising with you for that. Like, yeah, I, I feel yeah, bad yeah. for you that you're but going like, through the world slightly like, disgusted. But it's, not, it's, not really, but it's not really practical... To, it's not really practical to function like that. That you're giving a really bad image. It is strategic. A lot of it is strategic. Yeah. Like you're not gonna persuade anyone to be vegan by kind of telling them you're disgusted by them. Right. And that's gonna make me people more accommodating to you. I mean, sometimes I feel like people are. Sometimes in the way people are too accommodating. Well, maybe that's the maybe accommodating is the, too, the wrong word. But I think it's easy for people to kind of fit you in to their to, to their world where they're like barbecuing a massive stack of meat and then you've got a separate barbecue that's got your vegan stuff and it doesn't really challenge their anyone's view of me because you're just the kind of comfortable thing on the side so I do worry that I'm a bit too kind of that maybe I'm not critical enough about it but I don't think you can strategically be critical and really make anyone change their mind I think you have to do it more softly softly and kind of set the example and there are you know, I've, I've got lots of friends who haven't necessarily I've got friends who've become vegan actually not entirely because of me and Sonia but it's definitely been like part of it but definitely there are friends who are eating vegan more because they can kind of see that we have really nice food and because they've listened to our arguments about it as well and because they've seen that it's really easy as well so I I do I sort of try and persuade people subtly but it is it's a really what you're asking is a really good question because fundamentally you do have a sense of disgust right often when you are around people who are eating meat in a really gross <laughs> way and yeah like I do think it's I do it's problematic with dairy in particular because I have a particularly big problem with the dairy industry and I and like I think for people who for people who eat everything who are like mm, you know I could maybe try being vegetarian but I couldn't give up dairy I actually think like it would be better I mean I, I'm, I'm a bit I'm a bit funny about vegetarians because I just think you might as well become a vegan but if you're going to be vegetarian but also I think like if you want to take a first step then like keep eating meat and fish but give up dairy like dairy is the cruelest part of the animal industry well maybe no actually no probably like battery farm <laughs> probably battery farm chickens are worse but I mean like the you know in terms of the kind of regular mainstream food industry I mean the dairy the dairy industry is just horrific and so I'm sort of more disgusted by people having milk than I probably am by them having like a massive like organic steak 
Yeah, I'm just I'm very aware of the band that I had a cappuccino <laughs> just a minute ago. No, no, but it's different. I'm sort of no, no. I mean, it's, 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 this is so this is so like this is so like you know Stone Newton, but like it seems different in a cappuccino. Right. I still don't, I still don't think it's great, but like a glass of milk. I sort of do find that quite disgusting. Like yogurt. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's. Yeah, I feel. I feel a newfound sympathy for vegans going through the world now. Like whatever side you, you have of it, if yeah. someone's personal response is disgust, it's just a hard thing to be in the world which is so focused on meat eating and dairy eating. Like yeah, it's yeah. everywhere. Everywhere you go. Yeah, yeah. It's the, like the tide is turning in the world, and the number of vegans is is like rising all the time. There's definitely more than there was when me and Sonia became vegan and even at the point we became vegan we were definitely part of a kind of new wave and there's like more mainstream restaurants have vegan and there's sort of steps towards it I guess there's like more organic stuff and free range yeah, stuff yeah. and all of that stuff so step towards people it. are definitely yeah people are definitely moving towards it and although of course I'm like you know totally dismissive of the idea of an animal having a happy life <laughs> before it's been killed or you know free range and everything definitely like it is people moving in the right way because they're thinking about where their food has come from and there's been all the scandals over horse meat and all that kind of thing so if people can be better informed about where their food comes from especially when it comes down to the dairy industry because there is no ethical side to the dairy industry I mean you can't really there's no way to have a cow regularly being milked there is, there's no way to want to do a dairy farm ethically <laughs> you may have a list, you may you may have a listener who can oppose that but yeah if, if, you, if you've got your own like Maisie the cow in your back garden yeah okay maybe I can like forgive you that although like I'm sure you could get by without like drinking Maisie's milk <laughs> Yeah. See, so, yeah, I could talk about this forever, basically. No, I mean, but once it's like once it's opened up. Well, yeah, certainly you could, but we, we won't. No, no, no. Let's cover it well. And also, I mean, I mean, if people do listen back to Sonia's uh, conversation, we, we talked about veganism there, so they can get even more like stuff on it there. If yeah. they're really wanting to to either get even more angry if they're disagreeing with you, or yeah. to get more like information about it, they can listen to that one. Yeah, too. yeah. It's definitely. I mean, just, just the last thing I'm going to say on it is that you do. It's, it's very mild but there is a definite form of prejudice against vegans out there. and I've been surprised even at the Guardian how much of a freak you're made to feel being a vegan and that's partly about a kind of middle class self-criticism because you know everyone's very middle class at the Guardian but there is people are very scared of anything different I think part of it is also that people feel judged a little bit I yeah, mean, and, yeah. that, and that's because they are being judged a little bit yeah. like, no matter how much you don't want to judge somebody no like, no they know that you are yeah, no, they, they know it they know you are and I'm sure it's the same when um, you speak to someone who, who believes in anything basically I mean when you speak to anyone who's really religious yeah. you know you feel really judged by them exactly, right. even if they're not evangelical right exactly yeah like or uh, you know yeah. yeah yeah of course anyone who's done anything that for an ethical reason right 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 <laughs> which you don't do yeah absolutely yeah, I mean, yeah. the last question I ask is do you have anything to plug anything to plug yeah yeah, it would be great if people watched the documentaries that we've been commissioning at The Guardian. There's about maybe like 20 up there now, might be slightly less. And I'm really keen that people watch them and kind of come back to me and tell me what they think of them. At the moment, we've been sort of really making sure that the docs work online, so they're quite fast-paced and they're very kind of 
in your face and like you know they don't they're they're brilliant and but maybe they don't leave that much room for subtlety they kind of you know that they're really like here's something really interesting here's an interesting story here's an interesting issue watch this for 10 15 minutes and tell everyone about it and that's cool and i'm really pleased with that but i'm really interested in and it's interesting to hear what people think of them right and whether they think that there's a way we could be doing that differently or indeed if people have like seen them and are like oh i want to do a doc about this thing and i think it would fit in with that kind of editorial line it would be just great to hear people about them because the, the we get we get quite a lot of comments under the line and we get tweets about them but it's rare that I just get anyone sort of giving me a considered opinion right. <laughs> or kind of emailing and saying what they thought of things and that's really good we want to be really responsive to people who watch those films because our whole the whole ethos of the Guardian is about being open and we really and it's quite hard to do that because people you open the door but people are still very nervous about coming in <laughs> right okay and so how, how do people do that if they want to talk to you directly about the docs? Um, they, they should to. just email me. Right. Yeah, so my, my email is just charlie.phillips at theguardian.com. Yeah, it's quite um, easy to work out Guardian. Uh, yeah, it's always first name, not surname at yeah. theguardian.com. I mean, so it's me email anyone at theguardian. It doesn't necessarily help you. You can email them. They won't necessarily re- respond, but it's easier I'm always, to work I'm out. Like, I'm, always, I'm, like, I'm, really, I'm really good at answering emails, yeah. especially people who are giving me feedback on the film. I want to hear right. from people. I want to yeah, know yeah, what yeah. people think of them. Right. So, yeah, so check them out cool and it's been a real pleasure getting oh, back to cool. and the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience oh cool goodbye audience thanks for listening hope you've enjoyed it goodbye everyone <laughs> consider putting in your diary the London showing I'm doing of What About the Men Mansplaining Masculinity and I'm doing that as a double bill with AJ McKenna who will be doing her show Howl of the Banty on the 19th of November it's a stand-up tragedy presents night at the Dog Star in Brixton doors open at 7.30 and it is pay what you like or what you can afford we could do with the money both of us need money but we also want audiences to come in for what they can afford so if you can't afford to give anything don't give anything but if you can afford to please do because I am struggling very much as a freelancer at the moment and every little helps me and also AJ is going to be traveling all the way from Newcastle to London so it'll be amazing to be able to cover her transport you can find getting better acquainted and listen back to the previous episodes anywhere that podcasts go to congregate on the internet there's loads of other episodes some amazing conversations and I'd really love you to have a listen to them and if you can spare any money you'd like to donate some money to me making all of this free stuff there's a donate button at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk which is the website of my solo show but also of the survey of a thousand men that I did when I was doing research for the show you can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast you can like it on Facebook www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.